There's significance to those words, very carefully chosen, because our mission agency moved from uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, about an hour from here down to uh, Dallas, Texas, or Richardson, about, uh, I don't know now, five years ago, time escapes me, and uh, down there, that's the way they talk, you know. It's not enough just to say y'all, they have to use the plural if it's a group like you and say all y'all, so there you are. <laughs> Take that with you, and now you've learned something this morning about how they talk down there, it is different. It is a privilege to be with you once again. Now, I'm gonna say something that'll probably shock some of you. I, I, this, it was actually 50 years ago uh, this year, uh, 2018, that uh, I served an internship here in uh, the Fellowship Church. Pause. I'm waiting for the gasps. No, 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 not the applause. I'm waiting for the gasp. Like, no, no way. That guy doesn't look that old that he could have been 50 years ago. <laughs> but it actually was under Pastor Clyde Robinson, and it was, a, it was a great time. I learned a lot about ministry and was uh, part of my preparation for going to the mission field in the following year, 1969. But many fond memories of, yeah, there's the gasp. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I, yes. <laughs> Uh, many fond memories uh, serving here and uh, getting to know uh, many of you, many uh, familiar faces looking out here and some new ones too, that's good. Um, but um, this morning I want to talk a little bit, uh, be, uh, before we get into the text, about uh, some of the literature out on the back there. There's a, a table as you go out and there are some things there that are for you uh, to uh, help yourself to if you want to uh, learn more about uh, Muslims and how uh, Muslims think around the world. Uh, their uh, ummah, their sense of uh, unity that gathers, that pulls them together in their thinking and their theology. Uh, grab that baby there, and uh, then if you want to learn more about, uh, let's see, Hindus, uh, there's that one. You know, they're hard to talk to. I don't know if any of you have Hindu friends, but uh, trying to get them to, you know, to be, to be on the same level with you when you speak is really difficult. Somebody described it like trying to tack jello to the wall, you know, Hard to talk to you. Well, this, this little booklet will help you if you have Hindu friends that you want to share with. And then something that's more recent on our radar screen as a, uh, as a mission agency is ministry to refugees. Um, the refugee highway is constantly changing. It's constantly moving. There's no one set course. Doors close in one area. It just skirts around and finds another point of entry. Our international headquarters uh, for Cristar is in uh, Malaga, Spain, which is on the southern coast of Spain, a very beautiful little city, and that has become a port of entry for, uh, for refugees coming from Syria, from Iraq, and places like that. And uh, Germany also, you've read about that in the papers and so on. So we've developed a ministry there, Christar has, of ministering to refugees, and uh, actually uh, some of you could be involved in that quite easily. Uh, we have a couple that are in Germany from Hong Kong, right? And uh, this, this guy uh, had a, 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 you know, one of those highly skilled jobs in Hong Kong. I don't even understand it. It's called, it's like financial forensics, okay? And, uh, and, the, and these guys, what they do is their specialty is to look into the stream of finances that are coming into a company to find out if it's all legitimate or not, right? So he had this job in Hong Kong, high-paying job, and in Hong Kong, everybody's always humong, humong, very busy, very busy. And so it's not uncommon for people to spend, you know, to, to, to put in a 60, 70, maybe even 80-hour week on a job like that. Well, he gets wind of the fact that there's that same job opening over in Germany, and he and his wife pack up and they go to Germany, and he, you know, well, he, of course, applied for the job and got it, and now he's there. 
Okay, and, uh, and, but his main target, he and his wife, is to reach the Syrian refugees that are in that place in Germany where they are. Our international director went over to visit him recently and said, uh, well, I guess one concern we have is you've got this job and, and we know how many hours you put in in Hong Kong and do you have any time really to do the ministry toward refugees? And he said, oh, not a problem, he said. He said, here in Germany, they pay you the same amount for a 30-hour week that we did for a 60-, 70-hour week in Hong Kong, and I got all kinds of time to minister to Syrian refugees. You can be involved in missions. Uh, you really can. We're in a day and age in which uh, things have changed completely, and professionals can find jobs and stuff around the world and uh, find many ministry opportunities. So there's that one. If you want to know about Chris Star Moore, here's one called Chris Star DNA our core values and our doctrinal statement if you want to learn about the mission. And then this one, how to communicate, we just heard it this morning uh, in a letter, or at least alluded to, uh, to effectively communicate to people who are in what we call creative access countries, where you can't be very, you know, uh, open, you can't talk about converts and church and disciples and all that. Well, this has a little code thing here inside here that tells you some words that you can use. Uh, for example, instead of talking about a baptism, you can talk about a swimming party. Okay, and uh, instead of uh, talking about the Bible, you know, Bible studies, you can talk about book studies and things like that. So just use some common sense, and this will help you. Don't stop communicating with people in those countries. They want to hear from you. It's just you need to be a little bit more wise and cautious in the way you do that. Um, then there's also a sign-up list there. Be a prayer partner if you do want to continue to partner with us and haven't already or not receiving our emails, uh, we would be uh, delighted to put you on the list out in the back there, just sign up, okay? So, uh, so here we are, and we, we are actually in the midst of a, uh, a change ourselves, my wife, Jean, and I. Here's Jean over there, she's waving, everybody see her? Uh, she, uh, and we've been uh, serving for about 30 years now as uh, East Asia Regional Director. And for the, us, that means, for our Christar workers, we're in seven countries in uh, the Far East. And so they're in Mon Mongolia, in Japan, in China, in the Philippines, in Malaysia, and Thailand. And which one have I missed? Uh, there's one other in there that I've missed. Uh, uh, so th that's where we have missionaries serving. And our primary responsibility has been toward those missionaries in a pastoral care role combined with a team development training program that we have uh, been conducting now for probably about nine years called Clarion. Uh, you can go online and you can uh, key in clarionconsultant.org or, I'm sorry, clarionmodel.org and you can read a little bit about what that is. And it's uh, uh, using tools that will help our teams, because we do work in teams, to be more effective in what they do, to learn more about each other. And it actually surfaces some things that people didn't know, and they said, wow, really? I didn't know you were like that, and so on. And uh, It's all good stuff and, and helpful, and so we've been doing that. We'll continue to do that as well. In fact, next week I'll be involved in a consultant training program down in Exton uh, for people who want to use this for uh, ministry in their mission organizations around the world. Um, and, but now we're, we're switching into a new role. When, I was, uh, when we were down in Dallas, Texas, at our, uh, there, down there where they say all y'all, um, you know, talking to our U.S. director, uh, I walked into his office and mentioned a few things, and he said, uh, he said, John, you know, God loves you, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I said, uh, okay, Steve, uh, you know, um, tell me what, what that is. And so he said, well, 
Um, you know, for a long time, I've been trying to develop this whole thing of church partnerships. And uh, we have not done a good job of partnering with local churches. We just ask them to send their people, send money and pray, and then, you know, hands off, right? And we want to be more intentional about relating and, and helping churches in any way we can partner better together, not just on the front end, but all the way through. And so he asked if I would take that role of church partner coordinator, par partnership coordinator, and with a focus primarily on the Northeast, which was good news because I wasn't going to go down there to where they talk about y'all, y'all. Uh, you know, I wanted to be here in the Northeast, and he said there are plenty of churches up here, and so uh, that's what we're moving into now. And uh, I've made a three-year commitment. We'll see, you know, if I can hang in there and if I can, uh, what happens, and prepare to, you know, to extend that if, uh, if the Lord will. So uh, please pray with us in this transitional time. We really believe this is what God would have us do, <clears throat> and are looking forward excitedly, really, to, uh, to what's going to develop out of that. Now, enough of the introductory stuff. Let's get to the Word of God. And I want to challenge you all this morning with a question. It may sound kind of funny until you hear the message. And it's written in your bulletin, actually. The question is this. Are you building a tower or are you building an altar with your life? Are you building a tower or an altar? You say, hmm, what's that about? I'm not building towers and altars. Well, in the chapter 11 of Genesis, um, we'll start there. We read the uh, passage from Genesis chapter 12. We'll come to that in a second. But I want us to look at what was going on in chapter 11 before Abraham comes on the scene. And so there we read these words, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. <coughs> and it came about as they sojourned. Uh, journeyed eastward that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And so they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower uh, whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad <clears throat> over the face of the whole earth. Now, that's always seemed to me like a strange little uh, piece of scripture there, and I often wondered why it is put in there. And actually, um, and I, know I don't have time to go into this this morning, but this is the fourth of uh, four judgments that uh, God has brought with varying intensities upon the earth up to this point in time. The first one is when in the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve uh, took the forbidden fruit, and what was the judgment there? They were kicked out of the garden, one-way ticket out, and also the ground was cursed so that they had to work harder and, uh, and Eve would have trouble in childbearing. And so it has gone on down to today. That's the first one. The second one is Cain. <clears throat> Remember, Cain goes out, and uh, he's jealous of his brother Abel. Reason being that God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's, which was a vegetable offering, remember? And um, so he gets angry, and he kills his brother Abel. You know the story. And uh, then God deals with Cain. And he says now, and this is an interesting twist on the first one, uh, the first one, uh, the ground uh, is cursed on account of you. That's what God said to, to Adam and Eve. But to, Ab to Cain, he says, you are cursed from the ground, meaning that they would, the ground would never yield its fruit to Cain anymore. And remember, he was a vegetable farmer, which meant his livelihood was over. God said, no way you're going to be able to grow crops anymore. And so he became a vagrant, a wanderer upon the face of the earth. And he went off and built a city and stuff like that. That was the second one. The third one we're all very familiar with in chapters 6 through 9, and that's the flood, right? The universal flood, in which the situation on earth had gotten so bad, so desperate in the sight of God, 
that it says there that the thought of their hearts continually was evil. Every thought of their hearts was evil. And violence filled the land. And it was just totally corrupt and to the extent that God said there's only one, Noah, I'm going to rescue him and his sons. And he destroyed the earth with a flood in a cataclysmic uh, judgment upon the people of that time, saving only Noah and his family. And the fourth one is this one here. <clears throat> and this time, uh, we, we read that these people had um, uh, gone forth, and this is only probably about three generations from the flood, um, not very long afterwards. And the people start moving toward the east, and they find this place called Shinar, which is in the area now of uh, Iraq and that, that area of the world. And uh, what do they do? They start to consult with themselves, and they said, let's stop here and let's rest and, 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 and settle here. Okay, and then they said, now let's gather stone and make brick and let's make for ourselves a city. And then let's also build ourselves a tower, lest we be scattered abroad on the face of the earth, and make for ourselves a name. That's what's going on in this passage. Now, when you first look at it and you think about those things that they were doing, you can look at it from a human perspective and say, well, I mean... What are their interests? What is it they want to do? Well, you know, uh, it really sounds pretty harmless, actually, when you look at it from a human perspective. Uh, we all like to be settled, right? Does anybody here like to be unsettled? To, to, to not know where you're going to be tomorrow or next week or next month, right? We all want to be settled. So, you know, what's the big deal, right? And then, um, uh, you know, that reflects the need for just a comfort and settledness, very human uh, uh, values that we have. And then they want to make bricks and build a city. And I said, what's the big deal with that? I mean, people build cities all the time. My wife and I lived in Hong Kong for four and a half years. It has the most high rises in any city in the world, over 8,000 of them. It's a huge city, you know, and people love it there. And, uh, you know, it's just very expensive. But <laughs> um, So you say, well, you know, what's a city for? Well, a city is for security and safety, right? You live within a walled city and and you feel safe and secure. So what's wrong with that? Don't you all want safety and security? Okay, we read about the other side of things in the paper all the time and we get nervous, right? So you say, well, this is just normal stuff that's going on here. And uh, then they want to build a tower and make a name for themselves. Well, what's with this making a name for themselves? Well, there again, you know, looking at it from a human perspective, it sounds pretty innocent. I mean, all of us want to be people of significance Many people are searching for significance and don't know where to find it. They're trying to grasp and get it in some way, shape, or form, whether it's through money or through a, 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 a job that is well-known or some kind of status. Everybody's looking for that. And uh, so it seems like they themselves also were doing that same thing. They wanted recognition. They wanted respect. They wanted significance, importance. Uh, in fact, uh, back in 1943, some of you have studied, I'm sure, the work of Abraham Maslow, and he developed this hierarchy of needs. And uh, he developed the theory of human motivation in which he said that if those base, more basic needs are not met, forget about those higher needs. And so he said you need to have the physiological uh, first. All of your physical needs need to be met. You have to have food, and you have to have safety and security, and then you have to have love, a loving environment. And then only then, according to Maslow's theory, can you then really shine as an individual and find what they used to call years ago self-actualization. Uh, which is uh, realizing one's potential to the full. 
So, you know, we look at that and we say, well, why does it then, as you read further, that God comes down and he's not happy with what he sees as what's going on there, if these are just normal needs? Well, now we need to look at it from God's perspective. What did he find when he came down and looked at what was going on? Well, the first thing we noticed is that there's no mention of God at all in their thoughts and in their plans. There's the absence of God in their thinking. What did they do? They consulted together. They just got into a huddle and said, what should we do? Oh, I know. Let's do this. Let's settle here. Oh, hey, and by the way, let's build a city so that we're not attacked from the outside. And oh, yeah, a tower would be a great thing, wouldn't it? And, uh, but God looks at it and says there's absence of God in their thinking. Uh, God never entered the picture. They're, they're little atheists. Uh, they reflect what's told us in Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, get that, in the heart, they weren't necessarily verbalizing it, but in their heart, there is no God. And that's how these people were acting as they settled east uh, in the land of Shinar. Second thing that's not deliberately spoken to here, but if you go back to chapter 9, after the flood is over and uh, they come out of the ark, God repeats the command to Noah that he gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which is very simple. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. What are they doing here? They're consolidating their gains. They don't want to go any further. And so they are in defiance of God in their actions and just settling in one place and doing what they felt was the best thing to do. Now, that doesn't sound too far off, does it? You know a lot of people who are living their lives that way. Maybe not in open defiance, but in uh, some other kind of a more quiet uh, uh, defiance of God saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make you know, my life what I want and do what I want with my life, thank you very much. And I'll make my own decisions and I don't need advice and consultation from others, most least of all from God. And so uh, we, we find that they are, their actions reflect a defiance of God. And then the third thing is that as they want to build this tower, and it says the tower that will reach up into heaven. Now, did they think that it would actually go up to, say, the moon or something like that? Well, no, I don't think that's the intent of the passage. It's to build a name for themselves. This tower would be so magnificent and so impressive that it would be the symbol of man's uh, ultimate that man can do. And so they build this, they start to build this, this tower. Uh, we know from research that in those ancient days as far back as 3000 BC, they were building these things called ziggurats. And the ziggurats are just a step thing like this. It goes up to the top and it's flat. And up at the top is a temple. And the temple is to the local god or goddess of that particular region. And so now they've substituted, for, in place of god, they are now in the process of substituting themselves. It's a worship of man, humanism at its uh, most flagrant. And this is what God sees when he comes down and sees what they are doing. Man is at the center of all. Man wants to be in control. Does that sound familiar? Are we preaching a message here that sounds really strange or, or off, offbeat? Now, basically, that's what we hear in our society today, isn't it? You know, don't let anybody tell you what to do. Make up your own mind. Make your own decisions. You're a person of value. Just go for it. You know, follow your heart. That's what they were doing. Well, God came down and he didn't like what was going and so he judged them. And you know what he did? We all know the story, right? We won't read it. Uh, he confounded the languages, the language of the people, because they were all of one language up to that point. And then as a result of that confounding of the language, they scattered abroad. He scattered them abroad through the face of the earth. Now, let me tell you, um, I've studied a few languages in my lifetime. I majored in German when I was in college. 
We studied um, uh, Tagalog, which was the language in uh, Manila, in the northern city of Luzon, when we were teaching at Faith Academy. Then we moved down to Mindanao, where we became involved in a church planting work there, but it was a different language called Cebuano, so we had to study that. And I uh, even took a crash course in Cantonese one time. And we, yeah, crashed and burned on that one. Um, but, uh, but, but I'll tell you what happens when you're, when you're trying to use a language and you're new at it, is you're brave when you express what you know and you're pretty confident of, but then you pretty quickly you know, run out of stuff to say. And, so, and, and they think you're fluent. You know, in the Philippines, they say, oh, you're fluent. Uh, and, and, and you say, uh, actually not. And so they start jabbering away, and the tendency then is to pull back and to go and hide. Well, that's what happened here. They couldn't understand each other, and so they said, I have no idea what you're saying. I used to, but now I don't. Um, I'm out of here. And so God was very effective in his judgment, this fourth one now, upon the people. But at the same time, he was merciful and gracious in that judgment. He could have done a lot worse. But I'll tell you what, we're paying the price today for that judgment. Because as missionaries, uh, the first thing we tell people they need to do when they get to a land, to a country, a people group, is to learn that language. We don't care if the first two years you don't do anything else except learn the language. Why? Because that's the only way you're going to be able to communicate with them in their heart language and be able to effectively share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Unless you're all forever and a day going to be dependent on a translator, which has all kinds of built-in problems, especially if they're not a trustworthy translator. Uh, and so, um, so this is what happened. And so when you come to about the midpoint of chapter 11, we see the end of these judgments, and it's a sad story. These people scatter, they're gone, and there's nothing left. What did they want to do? They wanted to make a name for themselves. Do you know that as you search through that 11th chapter, you can't find one name of a person connected with that? Now, if you go back to chapter 10, you can, but I think that probably came later. A guy named Nimrod, <clears throat> but we don't have time to go into that this morning. You can check that out in chapter 10 and his connection with uh, the Tower of Babel, or City of Babel. Now, here's the turning point. So, so what I think is happening is God has looked down, and, and we've seen the natural end of all that man has tried, and it's failed because of sin. Sin entered the world and infected all aspects of people's lives, their thoughts, their emotions, their will, and we call that original sin. But now, as we move to chapter 12, we have a turning point because now God takes the initiative. That's the beautiful thing about the passage we read. God takes the initiative and now he sets about to rectify the situation to start to bring about his plan of redemption for a lost world. We've seen up through 11, it's hopeless from man's point of view. But from God's point of view, it's never hopeless, right? And God's plan is perfect. So, uh, so you know, we read the passage in chapter 12. God said to Abram, uh, I want you to leave your country and your relatives and your father's house and uh, go to a place that I'll show you and I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and I'll make you a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so what does he do? We read it in chapter, verse 4. Abraham went forth as God had spoken to him. Now here's what I want to do for you quickly this morning. I want to put to do like two little columns here, right? I want to compare and contrast what happened in 11 and what begins to happen in chapter 12. There are seven of them. Ready? It won't, I'm not going to be here too long. I think, did you say I have to one o'clock? Actually, I never checked with Pastor Justin about a time, so I feel, I'm feeling pretty free. <laughs> My wife goes like this. I know I'm in trouble. 
<laughs> okay, so we find that, that Abram responds to God's call in obedience, and here's the first thing. Uh, in chapter 11, we find that the people, their primary passion was to settle down in the land of Shinar. They found a place and they said, let's settle here. God comes to Abram and says just the opposite. I want you to leave your, fa your father's house, your family, your closest relatives, and go to a place that I will show you. So he's told to become unsettled, to pull up stakes, and to trust God to lead him to a place that he had for him. And also, <laughs> there's this little thing about age. You know, some of you sit back there and say, I know, this is a missions message. I'm an old guy, you know. This is for young people. Young people in here? So I can kind of check out, you know. Uh, hang on a minute. Abram was 75 years old when God came to him and said, hey, get up and go. Um, I'm not quite there. A few more years and I'll be there. But, you know, we're in a new phase of life, too. And sometimes we look back and say, are we crazy or what? You know, but uh, if God is in it, man, we're there. And I just want to challenge you, too. If God is in it, if you sense God leading you to make a, some kind of change, it may not be as radical as it is, was for Ab Abraham. But, um, you know, God's ways are always counterintuitive. They are. Uh, in Isaiah 55, 8, we read that as the uh, heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Don't count on your own thinking. Don't do like the people did in chapter 11. They counsel together among themselves. Listen to what God is saying to you. Second contrast, the people of Genesis said, 11 said, let us build for ourselves a city. Okay, what is their concern? Safety, security, like things like that, which a city provides. But Abram, if you go on and read further, was content to be a sojourner all of his life. From 75 years on, he was a sojourner. Do you know that? Even though God had promised him a land, the promised land, he never stopped living in tents and moving all of the rest of his life, which was how many years? How old was Abram when he died? 175. For 100 years, my mom just died, uh, what, a week and a half ago. Uh, she was 100 years old. And I think, man, here's Abram, wandered all that long, all the time that my mom was alive. Amazing, right? But it says uh, in, in uh, Hebrews 11, it says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. Now that speaks to me a little bit there because, you know, I, I don't know what was going on in Abram's mind. But, you know, it's like if I'm going to be obedient and God's going to take me to his land that he's going to show me I'm there, I want to be with him, this new God who's just revealed himself to me. Somehow he's trustworthy and I want to trust him. But he never did settle down. He never did build a house. He never did build a city. He lived in tents with his son and his grandson, Isaac, and uh, uh, his grandson all the time that they were in the land of promise. Is that amazing? God's plans, you see, are not limited by our time frame. God has a plan that expands often far beyond our own generation. And those who serve the Lord in our generation, all of us do, often don't see the net result, the end result. We don't see the end game. God says, just be faithful. Eventually, you'll get the whole picture. And uh, you'll be a little bit surprised when you see it. And, uh, and so, so Abram was okay with that. He was content to do that. Uh, the people of Genesis 11 listened only to their own counsel. They took counsel together and said, let us do this, let us do that, let us do the other thing. Abram listened to the voice of God. He wanted to hear from God. People built for themselves a tower to reach up to heaven. What did Abram build? build? Well, we didn't read it in those first four verses, but I want to read them for you in 7 and 8 of chapter 12. 
Listen to what Abram did besides just living in tents and moving around. Verse 7, chapter 12, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there in, to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then, verse 8, he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east side of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram was an altar builder. People in chapter 11 were tower builders. What's the difference? Well, a tower builder is a monument to man's achievement. Look at this great structure that we've built. We did it ourselves, folks. Isn't that wonderful? And they celebrate together, except they didn't get to do that, but <laughs> that's where they were headed. <clears throat> what does an altar builder do? We find in, chap in verse 8 that Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He worshipped. Now, an altar in those days was not to be made with cut stones and everything. It was just stones that were put together very roughly and sacrifice put on top. It was not, an, it was not a monument to man's construction ability. It was just a place of worship and of saying to God, Lord, here I am. You do with me whatever you want. I'm putting my life on the altar here. It's an altar of sacrifice. I want to give up all claims to my own will and desire for my life. And I want you, Lord, to take over and show me what you want to do with my life. That's the difference between being a tower builder and an altar builder. Tower builders call attention to themselves. Altar builders call attention to God. They want God to receive the glory and the honor. Not my will, but thine be done, is what we see. People wanted to make a name for themselves. Isn't this interesting? Again, you look back in chapter 11, there are no names attached. There's no name, even though that's what they sought. What did God say to Abram? He says, I will... Uh, make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. God said to Abram, I'll make your name great. The interesting thing is Abram didn't let that go to his head because he turned around and offered that back to God on the altar of worship. But now we have the promise of God. Isn't it much better for God to make your name great, however he chooses to do that, than for you to struggle and strive and try to make your own name great? For, that one doesn't work. That's a dead-end street. You know, nobody looks back on, at the end of their life and says, wow, look at what I did, look how much money I made, look at the wonderful job I had. But if God has blessed that life, they can look back and say, thank you, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you used me. In humility before the Lord. Six, number six, the people disobeyed God's clear command to multiply and fill the earth. Abraham obeyed God and set out to follow wherever God led him. And then number seven, the people experienced the judgment of God. Didn't they? The language were, was confused and they were scattered. What did Abraham receive? He was a recipient of God's blessing. Listen to how many times it's there in that passage. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. Make your name great so you shall be a blessing. There it is a second time. And I will bless those who bless you. That's a third time. All right. And uh, then a fourth time in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Bless, 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 blessed. Because God had Abraham's attention and Abraham walked in obedience to God. Now, my friends, what's all that got to do with us this morning? That's ancient history, right? Facts, real history, but there's lessons here for us, isn't there? Uh, right here in this room. Uh, what's the pattern of your life? That's really the question. For, and I don't mean, you know, 
I wouldn't, you know, invite you up here and give a pat answer. But I mean, really looking into your own life, what has been the pattern of your life? Have you sought for your own safety and security, comfort, settledness, make your name great, maybe not like these guys, you know, not flamboyant, but I just really want to be a person of significance, and so I'm working hard to get there. Or are we more like Abraham who said, Lord, whatever you want, whatever you want, you just tell me I'm going to worship at the altar of the great God who's revealed himself to me. Peter and Stephanie, I'll close with this. Beautiful young couple from California. I mean, they're like the, uh, you know, like the Beach Boys used to sing about, right? I mean, handsome guy, beautiful girl. Uh, he's a stockbroker in California. Uh, had a great thriving business. She was a hairdresser. Also a thriving business, I presume. I don't know. You know, making a lot of money, right? And, and, and somehow God laid on, first of all, on her heart, on Stephanie's heart, uh, that she should go on this uh, short-term mission trip. I don't know if it was in the church or some group that she was part of, to India. And uh, so she kind of struggled with that, but she eventually decided, yeah, it sounded like something she ought to be involved in. So she turned to Peter, and she hesitantly and very fearfully said to Peter, I think God is leading me, maybe us, I don't know, but at least me, to, uh, to, to, to participate in this short-term trip to India. Well, then Peter goes ballistic, you know. He says, what are you talking about? India, what's India, you know? What's, what's going on here? But uh, Peter, uh, a believer, you know, he was uh, smart enough to uh, think that uh, after the initial reaction was, maybe God is in this. And so he went off to pray and think about it himself. And then he comes back to Stephanie with a counteroffer. You know what his counteroffer was? Hey, pack up your bags, we're going. Not on a short-term trip, we are there. We're going to India. Amazing. God had worked in their life and, and, and brought them to that point of decision. They came through our new personnel training organization, uh, I mean, uh, program, uh, what, about a year ago? And then they came through our, pre we have another module called the pre-departure organization, <laughs> uh, uh, pre orientation, which is just uh, maybe within six months prior to leaving for the field. And they just did that last June, came through our PDO program. We also worked with them on the Clarion uh, training program. And, uh, and they were appreciative of all that. But what am I, why, why am I bringing them up? Because they are just one example of people who have laid their lives on the altar, as Abram did, and has said to God, God, if you're in it, if you're in this thing, man, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be disobedient. Forget the stock market. You know, forget the beauty salon and all that. We're going to go. And uh, now the problem with India is, like uh, many countries in the world today, uh, it's easy to get in but it's not easy to stay in for the long haul because you've got this little thing called visas, visa problems, right? And uh, you can usually get an entry visa into almost anywhere. In fact, many places you go, you, you just don't even have to get a visa. You walk in, they'll stamp a 30-day entry thing into your passport, and you can stay for 30 days. But try to extend that or try to change it to something that's more permanent, forget it. And India has gone ballistic on this too. And uh, so where that we have, India used to be our largest field, but one after another, as people have tried to renew their visas, they've been turned down, they've been denied. And so what Peter is doing is he's developed a, a, a business plan, a business model that he's going to present because India, places like India and China understand business. Yeah? If you're making money, they say, yeah, you've got you know, you a welcome carpet to come in. Uh, and so that's their plan, and they're actually hoping to leave, I think, next month for India. Study the language study the language, and then put into place this uh, visa platform, Lord willing. Things can change, but that's their plan. I just mentioned them because that's an illustration of what God is really looking for. He's not looking for 
uh, tower builders. God is looking for altar builders. Those who will come before him, worship at the altar of God's great name, say, Lord, you take me, you do what you want. There's some 40% of the world's unreached people groups. 40% uh, of the people groups in the world are still unreached. That means there's no viable church in their language and culture where they could worship even if they wanted to. Doesn't mean there aren't any believers, but it means there's no viable church. 40% of the people groups of the world, which number about 16,000, by the way, so you do the math, so that leave about 6,000, I think, that are still unreached. And our passion, the passion of, of Christar and other mission organizations too, is to go there in obedience to the Great Commission to make disciples of what? All nations, including those that don't have, and mostly those that do not have a church in their language or culture where they could worship our great God. But you know what? God only can use those who are building altars before him. If you're interested in building a tower, God says, okay, go ahead. Do that. If that'll make you happy. Whatever floats your boat. I'm looking for people whose hearts are completely mine so that I can use you. And God will. God will. God will never turn you away if you give him control. Lay your plans at the altar of worship of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this instruction from your word, the contrast between these, this nameless group of people uh, in chapter 11 and then the obedience of the man whose name stands out prominently throughout all of history because you've made his name great. Abram, who uh, in obedience to you, Father, left his family, left his country, and went to the place that you led him to and then continued to live a life of uh, just wandering, living in tents in order to see your name glorified and to accomplish what you uh, did through him and through those who followed. May this be instructive to us too, Father, and I pray for each one here that we would reach that point, whether we're you know, 15, 20 years old or 75, like Abraham was, that we would be obedient to whatever it is that you're telling us to do at this point in our lives so that you might be glorified and your name be high and lifted up among the nations and especially among those who have not yet had the opportunity to hear or where your church has not yet been established in that language and cultural group. Father, we know that that does not glorify you, that these people are left unreached. It will only be that when there are those from every tribe and nation and, and people group, that uh, uh, where there are some from each one, that you will be glorified as they stand around the throne and worship you, we together with them, for your great name's sake. It's his name we pray. Amen.